Good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we are going to continue looking at verses 4 through 14 as the Lord turns our attention from the creation narrative of Genesis 1 towards the Garden of Eden and the events that unfold there in chapters 2 and 3. Let's begin our time together this morning by reading our passage, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the first major transition here in the book of Genesis and looked at how that helps us navigate our way through the book as well as helping us understand the book of Genesis as a whole. And this morning, after seeing last week how verse 4 serves as a transition, this morning we are going to see where that transition is leading us. We're going to see that the transition of verse 4 is moving us from creation to how the Creator is going to interact with His creation, namely by way of covenant. This morning we're going to look at our passage in four points. Our first point will be the covenant God. Our second point will be the covenant creature. Our third point will be the covenant place. And our last point this morning will be from where blessings flowed. Well, let's begin uh, our time together by going to the Lord and asking him for his help. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, you have gathered us together this morning as your people to give you thanksgiving and praise and now to be ministered to by you through your word and spirit. Father, we ask that you would do just that among us this morning as we hear the words of our King echoing in our ears when he pleaded on our behalf that we would be sanctified in the truth, that your word is that truth, 
that he himself is the way and the truth and the life. Father, we come to you this morning in his name because he has instructed us to come to you asking in his name, trusting that you will give it to us. So we know that you are a good father that gives good gifts and that you are ready and able to help us. And so, Father, we plead with you this morning to cause your word to conform us to the image of your Son. That we would not just be hearers of it, that as it applies to our lives, we would be doers. Father, we ask these things not only for ourselves but our sister churches who are gathered together in many different places this morning. We especially want to lift up Grace Fellowship Church in Bremen, Indiana, as well as Mount Pleasant Baptist Church down in Wilkesboro. Father, we ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters there, that you would help them to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth, that you would be pleased to use them in their communities to advance the gospel as we desire to see you doing among us here in our community. Father, we think especially of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church and their beloved pastor, Kevin, who has a tumor on his spine, Father, we ask that you would grant him healing, that the prognosis of the doctors would be accurate, that it would be benign. Father, we ask that you would comfort him and his family, that you would comfort the souls of the sheep that he is watching over, that you would give strength to Pastor Dale and to Pastor Tim to carry the load that their brother pastor is not able to now. Father, that you would use this in the life of our brothers and sisters there at Mount Pleasant to help them grow, to help them depend upon you. Lord, that you would be glorified in their midst. Father, we also think of the Powell family this morning connected to Samaritan's Purse and how a wife lost her husband and children lost their father unexpectedly. Father, we ask that you would be with this family, that you would help them to absorb this shock. Father, that you would comfort them with the truths of your word, that you are husband to the widow, that you are a father to the fatherless. Father, we ask that you would use these things in his wife's life to cause her to depend upon you, to look to you, we ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters in the church that they are a part of, that they would come around them and serve them and care for them, bear their burdens with them. And Father, for their children especially, I do not know their ages, but if they do not know you, I ask that you would use this very thing, that Satan would seek to harden their hearts against you, that you would use this very thing in their lives to soften them towards you and to save them. Father, we do grieve with this family while at the same time rejoicing for our brother, knowing that to be absent from the body means to be pleasant with you, present with you and that that is much better. And so we thank you that you have so worked through your son that you have purchased this inheritance that he has received 
Father, we long for our Savior's returning that we too would receive that inheritance. Father, we also think of our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. We lift up especially this morning our persecuted brethren in Africa and all the different places in that enormous continent. Father, we thank you that you are saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. And we ask that you would use our brethren there to continue that work. We ask for your grace in their lives that they need to labor under the threat and the burden of persecution, that you would give them the mind of Christ who emptied himself and became and took on the form of a servant. And for the joy that was set before him endured persecution and even death. Father, would you give our brothers and sisters such a mind that they would count it a joy to be found worthy to suffer persecution for the name of our King. Father, we do ask that in your kind providences that you would direct their decisions and their thoughts such that they would be protected in many ways and that they would have more time and more opportunities to share the saving message of your gospel with those around them that are lost. Father, as we turn our attention now to this passage of Scripture that in your providence you have put before us this morning, we ask that you would help us to rightly understand it, that you would glorify yourself in our lives, that you would use this day in our lives to conform us to the image of your Son, to sustain us that we would endure to the end. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Sometimes very significant events can go completely unnoticed. Sometimes the significance of an event isn't realized until time has passed. For instance, there's a plaque marking Abraham Lincoln's birthplace in Kentucky that has part of a conversation on it where some neighbors are talking about big events that, are, that were happening in the world at the time, and then one of them asked the other about what was happening in their community. And his neighbor replied to him, Nothing. Nothing tall except for a baby born to Tom Lincoln. Nothing ever happens out here. Well, our passage this morning is somewhat like that. When we think about the early chapters of Genesis, we almost always think of creation in chapter 1 and the fall of chapter 3. And Genesis 2 can easily be overlooked like Tom Lincoln's boy being born. But I hope that by the end of our time together this morning that we will see that the point of creation in Genesis 1 is what we are reading about in Genesis 2. And what we will see happening in Genesis 2 is what is set, setting the stage for what will happen in Genesis 3 and everything else that follows from it. So just like Abraham Lincoln's birth, which seemed insignificant at the time, just like the passage of time and him becoming our 16th president showed the importance of his birth, so too this morning as we look at the details of our passage, it will be the unfolding of these details throughout the Bible with the passage of time that will help us see their importance here in the beginning. Let's start this morning looking at these things together in our first point, the covenant God. Last week, we looked at verse 4 and saw how this phrase in verse 4, these are the generations of. We saw how Moses uses this phrase to move us forward from the creation account of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 towards the Garden of Eden. 
One of the main ways we see this forward movement in Genesis is the way in which Moses changes how he uses God's name here in chapter 2. It's different than the way he used it in chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1, when you go through it, you should notice that every time Moses speaks about God, he only uses the name God. If you were to look at it in Hebrew, you would see that in chapter 1, every time Moses uses the word God, he is using the Hebrew word Elohim. And this makes sense because everything God makes in chapter 1 is natural. In chapter 1, God makes the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He puts them in their places. He organizes them and gives them all of their natural functions. God makes them the way he makes them. He creates them to do the things that he wants them to do. There's nothing in chapter 1 that requires special details. There's nothing that requires special instructions until we get to mankind being made in his image. So our passage this morning is zooming in on the sixth day of creation, and one of the first things we should notice is that when we zoom in on the sixth day, Moses changes how he is identifying God. Chapter 1, Moses only used Elohim, but in chapter 2, he begins using God's covenant name. If you look in verse 4 of chapter 2, you can see that Moses begins using this phrase, the Lord God. And though it's difficult to see in English, whenever you see Lord in your English translations in all caps, the way that you can see it in verse 4, every time you see Lord in all caps like this, it is using God's covenant name, Yahweh. Now this doesn't just happen in verse 4 of our passage this morning. If you look through it, you can also see it in verse 5. You can see it in verse eight, 7, 8, and 9. And if you were to read beyond our passage this morning and look through the rest of the Garden of Eden narrative in, in chapters 2 and 3, you would see that Moses uses God's covenant name 20 times in these two chapters. But the question is, why? Why does Moses change the way he's using God's name. Why does Moses go from using what we might call God's natural or generic name? Why does he change from that in chapter 1 to using his covenant name here in chapter 2? Well, the quick answer is because what is happening here in Genesis 2 is that God is making a covenant with Adam. Here in Genesis 2, God begins to require special things of Adam, things that are beyond the natural way that God made him. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean is that when we get to verse 17 in a couple of weeks, when we get there and we see God, we will see that God tells Adam that there is one tree that he cannot eat from. When God does this, he is commanding something extra of Adam. He's commanding, that, he's commanding something that Adam could not know about unless God told him about it. So I hope that you can see the difference here. In the Bible, we are instructed that some things don't require special revelation. They are natural to us. They are just part of who we are because of the way God made us. For example, you don't have to teach people that murdering is wrong. They know it naturally. You don't have to teach people that stealing is wrong. They know it naturally. Now, I know that people suppress this truth and unrighteousness, but we still know that they know these things naturally because even people that steal and murder, even they show that they know that it's wrong because they don't want anyone to do those things to them. However, there are also things that we cannot know naturally. There are some things that require special revelation to us. There are some things that God has to tell us 
to do. For instance, if God had not told us that we have to be baptized in the new covenant, we would never have known that. So we can see that in the Garden of Eden, if there is going to be a tree that Adam cannot eat from, and if there's going to be a severe consequence if he does eat from it, like, say, death for himself and all mankind after him, if that's going to be a thing, then Adam is going to need God to tell him that. Now, a special command like this is not something that Adam could naturally know. It's not natural revelation. Adam couldn't just look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and know everything that would hinge upon him not eating from that tree. In order for Adam to know this, he's going to need more than natural revelation. He's going to need a special revelation from God. He's going to need God to tell him this. And in the Bible, when there is special revelation given for the sake of God making his special commands and requirements known, when this happens in the Bible, we call these things covenants. And this is why we see God's covenant name being used 20 times here in the Garden of Eden. It is because God is imposing a covenant on Adam. Now, as you're thinking about this in your own mind and hopefully seeing the significance of Moses using God's covenant name so many times here in the Garden narrative, if you're having a hard time making this connection, I want, to try, I want you to try and put yourself in an Israelite shoe. Try to imagine that you have just been delivered from slavery in Egypt by a God named Yahweh. And that's his special name to you. That's his covenant name. And the first time you're hearing or reading the creation account in Genesis, and then all of a sudden you get past creation and boom, right all of a sudden you have God's covenant name being used. There's no doubt that as you're hearing or reading this, that it would have the effect of moving your thoughts from creation to a covenant context. There's no doubt that you're going to see what is happening here in the Garden of Eden from a covenant perspective. So as we are reading this and as we are moving from the creation of chapter 1 to the garden in chapters 2 and 3, we must also see the significance of Moses using God's covenant name here. We are moving from natural creation to a special covenant context. And this detail would not have been lost on the people of Israel. They would have been making these connections. They would have begun associating the creator of Genesis 1 with the covenant God of Genesis 2. They would have connected the covenant God of the Garden of Eden with the covenant God that delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It would have come to make the connection that the God of Adam and Eve is the God of Israel. And as Moses is giving Israel their history here and they are making these connections, they are being instructed that they exist because of what happens in these pivotal passages in Genesis 2 and 3. And surely they are seeing the parallels that we are looking at as we go through our points today. Adam's covenant God is their covenant God. God formed Adam, and he is forming and has formed Israel. God was giving Israel a special place to live in and to commune with him in, just like he gives to Adam. And as we will see in a couple of weeks, God gave them a law with consequences and blessings, just as he did Adam. And so as Israel is hearing and reading this, when they consider their history, their history, Israel can and must hear that their enslavement began when their first parents disobeyed God. And Israel can see themselves as redeemed because their covenant God is the same covenant God of Adam and Eve who is merciful and gracious and promises a redeemer in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. Perhaps even most importantly, as Israel is hearing and reading this, they must realize that like Adam and Eve who disobeyed God, 
and were exiled from the covenant place east of Eden, they must realize that if they break covenant with their God, that they too will be exiled from their promised land. Well, having seen the importance of Moses using God's covenant name in our passage, how it sets up a covenant context here in the Garden of Eden, let's move on and turn our attention now from the covenant God to his image bearer in our second point this morning, the covenant creature. In verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, before we get into the details of this verse, I just want to point out one thing for us, beloved. And that is that this is the story of mankind from the very beginning. We are not stardust. We are not evolved from pond scum or monkeys. We do not share ancestry with animals. Adam did not evolve into the image of God. No, beloved, he was created from the very beginning in the image of God. He did not stand up and walk out of a cave one day, but rather at the very beginning of his life, at the very beginning of his existence, God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And at that very moment, he went from not being a living creature to being a living creature. So brothers and sisters, you need to recognize that this is the teaching of Scripture. We need to understand that Moses saw what he is writing here as historical narrative. The people of Israel, King David, Solomon, the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul, and most especially our Lord Jesus Christ, they all believed that Genesis chapter 2 was historical narrative, not allegorical poetry. Now, as we are looking at verse 7, we can see that the language of verse 7 is the language of a potter's activity. The Lord God, the covenant God, takes the dust of the ground and he forms it and he shapes it into his own image and then he breathes the breath of life into man and he makes him a living creature. And this language of forming here in verse 7 is the same language used by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and even by the apostle Paul in Romans 9. It is the language of a potter's freedom. Is the language of our God's sovereign prerogative to do whatever he pleases with his creatures. So contrary to the views of the modern world, beloved, Adam was no accident. And Israel, as they are reading these early chapters of Genesis, must realize that neither were they. They were not an accident. God did not just stumble upon making them. He made them with intentionality. And they must also realize that God did not choose them because they were special. Deuteronomy 7 makes this clear when it says, The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So God forms Israel. He had formed them because he set his electing love on them. And an Israelite with eyes of faith could read these early chapters of Genesis and answer that perennial question of man, what is the purpose of my life? An Israelite could read these early chapters of Genesis and see that he and all of his fellow countrymen exist because God is keeping an oath. Because God is keeping the promise that he swore to their fathers, and that promise begins here in the Garden of Eden, as we will see when we get to Genesis 3.15. 
And likewise, brothers and sisters, you too can answer this question about what is the purpose of your life. Just as an Israelite could look forward in faith and see themselves and their labors for the God of Israel as the means that God was using to keep his promise in Genesis 3.15, brothers and sisters, you can look backward. You can look backward to the fulfillment of that promise in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can look back with eyes of faith and see your life and your labors as the means that our God is using to bring about the redemption to the full number of the elect that he gave to his son to redeem. Beloved, this is your purpose as a follower of Christ. You are to grow in holiness. You are to grow in sanctification in order that you would be salt and light in the world in order that you would be God's ambassador, and through you, God would make his appeal to a lost world to be reconciled to you. Everything in your life should be a means for you to serve that purpose. Because when you were saved, as that old VBS song goes, as we're in VBS season, when you were saved, you were enlisted in the Lord's army. You were redeemed in order that you would put your hand to the plow and not look back. This is why the Lord Jesus tells us to count the costs. That we might take up our cross and follow him as our savior in this world. Considering the salvation of his elect that he spilt his precious blood for as more important than anything else in our lives. Beloved, do you recognize this type of mindset in your own life? Is this the purpose with which you are living your life? Have the things of the earth grown strangely dim for you? Or have you found the narrow way difficult and have found the trappings of the world, the remaining corruptions of your own flesh and the schemes of Satan to have caused the things of eternity to grow dim in your sight and to seem strange to you. Beloved, if that has happened in your life, then I urge you to consider what the purpose and the meaning of your life is and to repent of those things that are causing eternal things to grow dim in your mind, to repent of them and to refocus your attention on the promise that was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of your Savior. And that promise that you have been saved for, to continue to seek and save that which is lost. The promise of eternity. Well, let's look back now at verse 7. Here again in verse 7, we can see how the narrative is moving us forward because in verse 7 we see man made from the dust of the ground, the breath of life given to him by the covenant God. And we can see Adam here as the covenant creature, not because we find the word covenant here in Genesis chapter 2, but because we find all the parts of a covenant here. We find all the elements or all of the ingredients that make up a covenant here. We don't need the word covenant because if it walks like a covenant and quacks like a covenant, then it's a covenant. Let me show you what I mean. So far, we've seen that God uses his covenant name throughout this passage. And we see here in verse 7, we see the covenant God creating and giving his image bearer the breath of life. But we know that because of what happens in chapter 3, that this breath of life is going to be lost when Adam dies and returns to the dust from which he was made, as Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, why is that detail important? It's important because of how Adam's life is going to be lost. 
Remember, we're thinking a little ahead here into chapter 3 so that we can see the full picture of what is happening here in chapter 2. Adam's breath of life is going to be lost through disobedience. And not just any disobedience. Adam is going to die because he breaks the special command given to him to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we saw in our first point, that is not a natural command. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a tree full of Sinai. It's not a tree full of poisonous fruit. This command to not eat from this tree is a command imposed upon Adam by the covenant God. And when the covenant God imposes commands on his people, we call those special commands covenant regulations or covenant law. And we call the consequences of breaking special commands covenant curses or covenant consequences. And so if Adam suffers covenant curses, namely death, then Adam is, by necessity, a covenant creature. And so the fact that Adam loses something in chapter 3 that he is given here in chapter 2 means that there is some kind of covenant relationship between God and man here in chapter 2. And we are going to dig into this more and see this in a couple of weeks when we look at verses 15 to 17. And we are going to put a name to all this covenant content and this covenant environment that seems to be getting put forth here in Genesis 2 when we talk about the covenant of works. So what we have seen so far in our passage today is Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God, making his image bearer body and soul as a covenant creature. And so now let's move on and see our next covenant element in our third point today, the covenant place. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me again. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now notice again all these covenant elements. You have God using his covenant name Yahweh in both of these verses. And you have him forming the covenant creature in verse 7 and putting him here. In verse 8, where God is going to commune with him, and we know that this is where God communes with his covenant creature in a special way because, as we will see in a couple of weeks, in verse 15, the Garden of Eden is where he first speaks to Adam. It is where he makes Adam's helper. And it is where, when we get to chapter 3, we will see in verse 8 of chapter 3 that after Adam and Eve sin, it is where God comes to pursue them. And after having broken covenant with God, you can see at the end of chapter 3 that God removes them from this special place, this covenant place. So you have the covenant God putting his covenant creature in a covenant place where he's going to commune with him. And we can see the significance of this covenant place when we look at verse 9. In verse 9, we see that God made all kinds of trees that were pleasant to look at, that were good for food, but we can also see in verse 9 that the covenant God put two special trees in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Two trees that we will see as we continue our march through chapters 2 and 3, we will see that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are visible signs of the covenant that God is making with his creature. Tree of life comes first in verse 9, representing a promise of covenant blessing, and we know that it represents a covenant blessing because Adam is already alive. Adam already has life. Adam doesn't need saving from death because death isn't a thing before Adam sins. So the tree of life represents something better than what Adam already has. 
It represents eternal life, a blessing that we can see at the end of chapter 3 is lost when it says in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 3 that God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and cuts them off from having access to this tree of life so that they will not eat from it and live forever. And we also see the other tree in verse 9, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It comes second in verse 9, and we know that it represents a covenant test. It represents a covenant test which, if failed, receives punishment, a covenant curse of death. And these things, these two trees, as we are looking at them, we must notice that these two trees are not on the periphery of Adam's life. But as you can see towards the end of verse 9, that these two trees are in the midst of the garden. They are in the center of Adam's world, in the center of his life. The center of Adam's world it was a place of communing with God, and far from a distraction, the tree of promise and the tree of testing went to the very root of God's message to his image bearer. They communicated to Adam that God is the source of mankind's life and his wisdom. And the testing that is going to happen at these trees is going to require Adam to trust in God with all of his heart and to not lean on his own understanding. It is going to require Adam to make God's law his delight, to understand that God's words are his very life, and that if he leans on his own understanding, this is going to mean death for him. Beloved, what a message that was for the people of Israel. As they read this and they recognized the covenant God of the garden to be the covenant God who delivered them from slavery and was taking them and putting them in a covenant place in the promised land of Canaan, and do we think that it would go unnoticed by Israel reading this, that when God gives Moses directions for building the tabernacle and the temple, that special place where he would commune and be in their presence, do we think that it would go unnoticed that these places were filled with imagery from the Garden of Eden? A lampstand shaped like a flowering tree. A veil guarding the way to the holiest of holy places covered with images of cherubim. Angels guarding the way like they do to the tree of life at the end of chapter 3. And behind the veil, a law written on tablets of stone, which if, which if broken would mean exile from this promised place. And most importantly, the tabernacle and the temple mirrored the Garden of Eden in that they represented God dwelling in the midst of his people. The clear and unmistakable message to the people of Israel as they would read this is that their covenant God the God of the tabernacle and the temple is also the God of the Garden of Eden. Brothers and sisters, we cannot move on from this point without seeing that God has so provided for us in Jesus Christ that now we are his temple, beloved. You are not only God's covenant people, but you are also his covenant dwelling place. It is no accident that in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, that our Lord Jesus speaks of himself as the greater temple when he tells his persecutors, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. Beloved, our being united to him means that we are his temple. And this is exactly what the New Testament teaches us in passages like Ephesians 2, where it says, beginning in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Beloved, Christ puts us together. He builds us on the foundation of his apostles and prophets with himself being the cornerstone by which everything else is measured. He is building us and putting us together and making us a holy temple in him. Beloved, what are we to do in the temple of the living God? The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Romans 12 and 1 Peter 2 instructs us that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our spiritual worship. Brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed out of the world so that we must not be conformed to the world, but rather we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We must be holy as He is holy. Beloved, until we see our Savior who has redeemed us for Himself, until we see that He, who is the true temple, has united us to Himself and is building us together, until we see this picture, we will not appreciate our privileges or our responsibilities as individuals in his church. Two things are true here. We in our bodies are the temple of God because his Holy Spirit dwells in us, and we are also the temple of God when we come together in a special way as our King rules over us and is in our midst when we gather as an assembly of Christ as a local church. And so just as Adam in the garden and Israel in the promised land, beloved, we must hear the words of our Savior as we experience temptation and difficulty and persecution during our pilgrimage on the narrow way to the celestial city. Beloved, we, like Adam in the garden of Israel, in the garden of Eden, excuse me, in Israel in the promised land, must hear and heed and learn to love the words of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he was tempted. And he instructed us when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He has told us that if we love him and if we have his spirit dwelling in us, if these things are true, then we will obey what he has commanded us not in order to be justified, not in order to be declared righteous before God, for our Savior has accomplished that for us. We are are not under the law as a covenant. We are under grace. We obey our King, not in order to gain entrance into the covenant place, but because we are the covenant place. Sin cannot and will not have dominion over us because God dwells in us, beloved. He communes with you. He bears witness with you by his spirit that you belong to him. It is he who is at work in you to cause you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it is he who will hold you fast and see to it that you gain the eternal inheritance that he has purchased for you. Well, we will continue to develop these thoughts as we go through chapters 2 and 3 in the coming weeks. But today, I want to move on to our fourth and final point in verses 10 through 14 and see that the covenant God gives us a picture here in Genesis 2 of blessings flowing out of a covenant place that is filled with covenant obedience. Much like our opening illustration with the birth of Abraham Lincoln, much like it seems significant at the time, verses 10 through 14 of our passage today likewise seem insignificant. They seem out of place almost in this creation of mankind in the image of God and having the breath of life breathed into him and him being put in a special place with special trees. We're moving right along in our passage and headed towards the covenant stipulations of verses 15 to 17, and then all of a sudden, in verse 10, we have what seems to be a random description of a river that flows out of the Garden of Eden. 
And this can seem strange and insignificant to us and can be puzzling as to why it is included here in Genesis 2, but I hope that by the end of looking at these verses together that these five verses we will see are pregnant with meaning. When we begin by looking on the surface of these verses, we can see in verse 10 that there's a river that flows out of Eden, which means that Eden is elevated and perhaps even on a mountain. This river is watering the garden and then flows downhill and divides and becomes four different rivers. Now the last two rivers in verse 14, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are rivers that we can identify and point to on a map. But the other two mentioned in verse 11 and 13 are not. And what could easily happen here is that we could easily get distracted with trying to figure out where these rivers were, which would help us try to figure out and be able to point to the Garden of Eden on a map. But what we should see and focus on in this passage is this picture of a river flowing out of this place where God communes with his people. A river flowing out of a covenant place, and this river becomes the source of living water that spreads out of the covenant place and multiplies from one into four, and these four rivers fill the surrounding earth with abundance. So the picture that develops here is a picture of covenant faithfulness in the heart of a covenant place resulting in blessings flowing from it to all that surrounds it. And this was to happen initially as Adam and Eve multiplied and filled the earth and exercised dominion and continued to obey God's special command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Out of the heart of this covenant obedience in the covenant place would flow living water that would bless and nourish the land as Adam and Eve's offspring exercised dominion and filled the earth with holy image bearers. But this is the picture before the fall. After the fall, we don't see this picture again until Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 47. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but we should also see what we've seen in our other points today. We should see here in verses 10 through 14 that the details of these rivers... They find a lot of parallels in the lives of the people of Israel that would have been noticed. Consider the gold of verse 11 from the land of Havilah and the onyx stone of verse 12. How they become prominent in Israel's tabernacle and its furnishings and in the priestly garments. Just take time sometime to read the accounts of Israel's building the tabernacle and temple and consider the volume of gold that overlays the furniture and the inside of the temple. And particularly important to the people of Israel would be the onyx stone of verse 12 of our passage today, which was on the priestly ephod and had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on it and would lay over the high priest's heart as it was placed on his breastplate. And so these details that seem out of place to us here in Genesis 2 find many parallels in the mind of an Israelite as they consider their tabernacle and their temple. And these details continue to point us to the covenant context here in our passage. But the real picture that I want us to grab hold of in these last five verses of our passage is seen in other places of Scripture. But we must first get this picture of a river flowing out of a covenant place in our minds. And when we do, we can go to Ezekiel 47, where the vision he has of a temple, a covenant place, that has a river that flows from it, beginning as a trickle, but ends up becoming broad and deep and giving life to the countryside and flows and spreads out, but all finding its original source in the covenant temple. And this picture that is produced in our minds by Ezekiel chapter 47 is fulfilled and accomplished and consummated when blood flows out of the true temple. 
Remember we mentioned earlier when Jesus tells his persecutors, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Beloved, the blood that flowed out of the true temple on the cross, this is the river that became rivers of living water from Emmanuel's veins. A river that flowed out of the true temple. A river coming from a sinless son of God who represented his people. And this river of blood flowed out of the true temple and spread out from Jerusalem to Judea and goes on to the ends of the earth. This river is effectual for salvation. It is fruitful. It multiplies. And the river that flows from Emmanuel's veins gives life to all that surrounds it. Beloved, this picture of rivers is going to climax in Revelation chapter 22. As the Apostle John picks up this picture of Ezekiel's temple and speaks to us words of comfort about what it will be like when our Savior returns for us. So hear these words from Revelation 22 and see in your mind all of this garden imagery and remember the terrible consequences of Adam's sin that cut them off from the tree of life at the end of Genesis 3. Listen to these things as I read Revelation chapter 22 beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship him. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, see this picture as it begins here in Genesis chapter 2. A river flowing out of a covenant place and watering the ground and providing for everything around it. See how this picture before the fall of man, see how it is picked up after the fall and developed in Ezekiel's temple. And see how the prophecy of Ezekiel's temple is fulfilled and accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ, that place where living blood flowed from Emmanuel's veins. That place of rest. On this day, beloved, when we worship and gather, on this Sabbath day, when we look back, and remember what Emmanuel accomplished for us on the cross. And we look forward to all the things that what he has done for us is going to mean in our future. Look forward to when our Savior will come again and consummate the new heavens and earth. And as it is pictured in Revelation 22, how on that day in the new Jerusalem, flowing from the temple, there will be the water of life that proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And don't miss this picture in Revelation 22, which not only picks up this picture of Genesis 2 and a river flowing out of a covenant place, but also see that what was lost in Genesis chapter 3 will appear again in the new heavens and earth. In Revelation 22, we can see that because of what our Savior has done for us, we will once again have access to the tree of life. What once was lost will be found again when at last our covenant God takes us, his covenant people, and dwells with us for eternity in that consummated covenant place. Let's pray. Our Father, in heaven. We come before you this morning having considered these things perhaps for some of us the first time. Father, we ask that you would help us to see this thread that begins in Genesis 2 and because of the fall becomes reliant 
on a promise in Genesis 3 and how that thread is traced through the history that is recorded in Scripture, the history of you redeeming a people for yourself, a people to inherit eternal salvation, a people who would one day have access to the tree of life that was lost in the garden, a people redeemed by a promise, a people who live now in, by faith in that promise. Well, Father, help us to see these threads and help it to cause our faith to grow as we consider the beauty of your word. How these things in your word are not put there by accident, but that you put them there intentionally, that we would meditate upon them and that they would constantly drive us back to see that what was lost is only found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see that picture and to have that stir up within us an understanding of why there is salvation in no other name. For salvation is only given on your terms. And your terms were the promised offspring of Eve and Abraham that we know is Jesus Christ. That no other name under heaven has been given among men by which we may be saved. Father, help us to see these things in Genesis 2. Help us to not only be instructed by them, but to be edified by them as we read the rest of Scripture. Help us to see the importance of what the first Adam fails to do and how the second Adam, the true son of God, the true Israelite, the true temple, how he accomplishes the things that were lost. Oh, Father, use these truths in our lives today and in the days to come to help us to see that our purpose in life is to look back in faith on that promise that has been fulfilled and see our labors in this world, our purpose in this world is to continue the ministry of our King and Savior to seek and save that which is lost. So that in the end, not one drop of the blood that flowed from the true temple would be wasted. But that what he purchased for his people would be experienced by all of his people. Father, help us to realize that now in our generation that there are many in our families, many of our own children, many in our own community that do not know these truths, that do not know of their perilous condition still being united to the first Adam and under the burden of works which they cannot give and how that burden will drag them through the grave into an eternal hell. Father, help us as your ambassadors seek those people out, not to look down upon them with disdain, but to look upon them with pity and Tell them of the wonderful pardon that is offered to them this day. 
And Father, would you use us and use the preaching of your gospel to grant mercy, to grant salvation. And Father, would you use us in our generation to see a great awakening of affections for what you have done for us. Father, we know that this must begin at the household of God. This must begin in our own hearts. And so, Father, we plead with you to shake the dust of apathy off of our own hearts. Remove the scales from our eyes where the things of this world have choked out in some cases, the things of eternity. Where the distractions of things that men have created, whether that be social media or video games or television or our own recreations, distract us from the beauty and the awe-inspiring things that you have created. As our brother, Pastor Quinn, spoke of this morning in Sunday school, help us, Father, to consider that which you have created and cause that to be a source that leads us to worship and cause that worship to be a burning fire within us that seeks to go out and share the gospel so that your worship would increase as you save that which is lost. Oh, Father, help us today. We are completely dependent upon your Spirit doing this work in our lives. And so we lift these things to you in your Son, Our King's name, amen.